Good afternoon, you're on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Just a quick reminder, this Daily Maverick Show is proudly delivered to you by Postnet Courier. Today, Patty from Paris sent Christmas presents to Paris. Graham from Grahamstown sent gifts to Homozo in Gaboroni. Both used Postnet Global Express. They chose from eight different box sizes, packed their items in their boxes, and their parcels were delivered directly to their international destinations. Postnet Global Express delivers two-door anywhere worldwide. It's easy, affordable, and convenient. Plus, you can track your parcel online. There are over 300 Postnet stores nationwide. Locate your nearest store at postnet.co.za. Good afternoon. You're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central, just about 1.06 p.m. Quick roundup of what we'll be talking to about today. Um, first, we'll be talking to Ranjeni Munusami, our associate editor, who's, who's live at the Kosatu Congress, which is going into its second day. Also, we'll be talking to Greg Nicholson about the parliamentary report on violence against foreign nationals. We saw a big outbreak of that early in the year, and we want to hear what our parliamentarians are finding about what's going on there. And lastly, we'll be sp- speaking to Simon Allison about a lot of news issues around the continent. We saw the attacks in Mali late last week, as well as what's looking like a resurgence of Ebola in Liberia, which we thought had been declared Ebola-free. So a really packed show lined up. Uh, let's get into it. Greg Nicholson, the man who brings the heat even after the heat wave. <laughs> Welcome okay. to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Man, I want to go straight to Ranjeni. I think she's been holding on the line. Ranjeni, can you hear us? All right, not quite. Greg... Tell me about what you've been working on with the Parliamentary Commission. What what were the findings? Earlier this year, we saw the big, you know, flaring of, of, of xenophobic violence, or what later was called xenophobic violence, in Gauteng, in KZN. What, what's, what's the report about? What did they find? Yeah, well, obviously, as we all know, there are a few flare-ups of xenophobic violence this year. In sort of late January, early February, I think it was, we saw instances in in Soweto, particularly in Snake Park, and then that sort of spread to other areas where we saw a couple of deaths, uh, particularly related to to challenges, I guess, in these townships between between foreign nationals, the ones generally who own stores, and some of the community re- residents. And then, of course, we saw it flare up again in around April, where where it started uh, in in and around Durban and some mm. of some of the townships mm. in KZN. And from there, that that then that was actually quite intense. Where I think it was up to nine thousand people or something. Nine thousand foreigners had to flee flee uh, into camps. And from there, sort of, it, it spread and sort of continued. And then then it came to Joburg, came back to Joburg, I guess. And we saw all these different instances in Jeppe. So this is just a, a quick wrap. So you remember what's going on. And everybody knows about the the killing that was on the, the featured quite graphically on the front cover of the Sunday Times of Emmanuel uh, Sotolo or Emmanuel Hoseas. And that really spurred the government to action. That's how we saw the, the army in the townships uh, through Operation Fiala. We saw a big response. And one of the longer-term responses that we saw from the state was the launch of this uh, ad hoc joint uh, committee in parliament probing the violence against foreign nationals. So... What it's been, what this committee's been doing for the last, I think it was launched in May and maybe started its work around June. What it's been doing is visiting some of the key sites, uh, where this violence over the year has occurred, speaking to some of the key role players, looking into some of the, the real specific allegations, um, deciding whether this thing was xenophobic and looking into some of the root causes of these problems. 
I mean, I'm curious to use the word root cause. I mean, there's so many underlying factors. There's mm. so much background. So I'm, I'm curious, did the report center on things like, you know, the looting that happened to some of the shops and the reaction we saw to that and said, listen, this actually started from these isolated incidents? Or was it more, you know, more of a sort of, I don't want to say social science approach, but to look into the, into the, the asylum seekers coming to the country, the refugees, the lack of economic opportunities? What, what approach would you say it took? So it sort of jumped around between the two different approaches, really. And so, so it did look in parts about, so South Africa's pull and push, the pull and push factors that, that, uh, result in migrants coming to South Africa and the issues of instability within other African countries in particular. And so from about sort of midway through the, the sort of central African countries down, sort of pushing, pushing migrants down and then the pull factors of having, you know, a strong economy, uh, greater political stability than many of, many of the neighboring countries and, so sort of combined those issues with some of the problems around particularly i guess township economies and and so 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 on the one hand there were some really general root causes that's you know it's sort of you just sort of scratch your head when you think about how we're going to solve this thing like jobs right so there's everybody knows we have a job crisis in south africa with with you know the official unemployment rate at a little bit over 25 percent i think still and and then we also have a housing, you know, there's housing shortages, there's all these sort of things. So the foreigners come in, you know, and they're often in these sort of low, um, low income earning areas yeah. with, with South Africans and then South Africans can get annoyed or something can spark them. And then, then it sort of builds resentment as well as there aren't, there aren't, uh, specific social integration programs. Despite, and this is one of the sort of the shocking things too, is that mm. despite the 2008 xenophobic uh, violence, which really did spread, um, and was quite horrific. Um, while we didn't see that sort of violence this time, and the report commends the state and civil society actors for preventing the, the expansion of that vi- to those levels this year, it does note that there were there haven't been any significant social integration programs since 2008, which is quite shocking. I mean, that's weird that you can simultaneously pat yourself on the back and say, hey... It didn't get as bad at 2008, and then in the next line say, "Granted, we really didn't do anything and ever that's, since 2008." That's one of I think the yeah. the key struggles of this report because it, yeah. at times it feels like there it does respond to political criticisms and does try to sort of pat people on the back, which I think that's I, I think it is fair for them to say, "Listen, mm. we haven't done enough for the, to, for some of the long term changes that we needed mm. to make," mm. but at least our short-term crisis intervention. Oh, the crisis management is second you hear that something has happened. That's right. But I don't think it was as good as it could have been still okay. this year, yeah. personally. But So, yeah, back to the causes of this thing. And so so the the report finds that, you know, there's these there's these just sort of living amongst each other in, in what's a very resource-challenged areas creates tensions, you know, amongst foreigners and locals. And so that's that's sort of the thing as to, you know, like, what's the solution? Grow the economy, create jobs, you know, build more houses. Sure. But that's, you know, that's no short term solution, Mm. particularly with the economy, how it's going. Then there are these other more specific root causes that that the report identifies. And it's so they come back to some things like um, township businesses, particularly on the like spaza shops and things like that, where there's actually some quite interesting statistics where it, it. identified specific areas so Jeppy for example Jeppy's town in Johannesburg where I think was quite a high percentage of of that area around where there mm-hmm. were protests um the the register's doors there a very high percentage of them are foreign owned okay. so there's some things like that and so they looked into some of the causes as to why are foreigners better at business 
and there have been other studies on, or, or in certain areas, there have been other studies done on these things. You know, that has been one of the key issues, excuse me, that's come up since the xenophobic violence this year. And, but then again, it's, so, so we already know that, right? That, that there are locals who are annoyed that, because foreigners are owning a lot of spaza shops. And, yeah, I mean, and, that's part of my worry. They come back and be like, guys, we've established that there's some tension in communities mm. and spaza shops are somewhat involved in the tension. And, that's right. And it's like, okay. And but, so, yeah. and so the only really recommendation on these sort yeah. of things is, you know, the, the Ministry of Small Business should support, uh, offer, cause, cause these local businesses generally have locally owned businesses. It says have very little support or, or no support at all. And so the Ministry of Small Business should mm. offer, Offer some sort of greater incentives and, and and things like that, but otherwise on that front, it's hard to you know it's hard to sort of calculate what can be done at least from this report's recommendations. Yeah. And the alternative, it's easy for the report to condemn foreigners, right? So even when the report is describing how so foreigners living in South Africa, for example, have Perhaps they have better business skills because I'm not sure they're more entrepreneurial where they come from or something like that, or they're more desperate. I'm not sure. Um, but they also have more, greater networks and can, you know, buy goods wholesale and, um, and issues like that. So, but then the report sometimes when it mentions these things, the tone seems to be quite accusatory. And it also says that some shops, you know, like salons and spaza shops are in fact fronts for drug trades and brothels and, you know, and, and that's only the ones owned by foreigners, I'm assuming. Well, that's, that's, that's one of the things, right? And then also the issue of, you know, undocumented foreigners and the, the large, the large amount of foreigners that have come into South Africa that, uh, it's been hard to control and, and provide accurate information on. So that looks at that problem, but it's, you know, it's after reading the reports and looking at the, the solutions, mm. I was, I was left a little bit underwhelmed. It did, did help me understand a little bit more because of course this, this team have, have been able to go to some of the key points on this issue. They have been collecting submissions, but I would have liked to see much stronger recommendations, particularly incorporating some of the recommendations from the many, uh, Civil society actors that did make submissions to this group. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I hear you, but I suppose perhaps you were expecting too much. We did a lot of analysis as this thing played out, and perhaps this is just the official one that takes a while. But perhaps it may feel disappointing because a lot of these things were discussed. But but know. it's also disappointing yeah. because these things have also been discussed after the two thousand and eight attacks, yeah. and we have to remember that while we mark two thousand and eight and two thousand and fifteen as particular i guess waves of of xenophobia which the report says it, it wasn't xenophobia uh particular waves of fire, violence against foreign nationals we have to remember that throughout this period there have been attacks on on foreign nationals and the key thing is if this report or if there aren't significant and comprehensive interventions made now it's it 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 seems obvious that the pattern will simply continue well there you have it the Ad hoc joint committee probing violence against foreign nationals. That's the report. Greg, catchy name. Eh? I know, right? It's, you know, we should get an acronym. The AHJC OB. Oh, never mind. <laughs> anyway, if you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Remember, you can tweet us on at DM Shows at A. Next, we'll be talking to Ranjani Munusami, who I think can finally hear us on the line. Ranjani, can you hear us? Yes, I can okay, hear you. Okay, perfect. I'm sorry for the mix up about that. Yes, it's uh, quite noisy here, as you can imagine. There are about 3,000 people in one room, and every single one 
as a smartphone, so it's not surprising that uh, okay. that the network takes train. Okay, I mean, let's get into it. You're at the Kosatu Congress. It's the second day. Um, could you give us some context? Just coming into day one, I mean, what were you expecting? Was there this disunity and some of the sort of fracturing we've seen from Kosatu? What coming into the Congress? Um, what 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 were you expecting? Okay, so you must remember that uh, pretty much the same group of people were were in the same room uh, just uh, in July this year for mm-hmm. a special national congress. Um, that that congress was. Um, was called to, to deal precisely with the problems in society, the divisions, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the issues affecting uh, Zelenzi Mavavi and NUMSA. But this one is a scheduled national congress. It's uh, called every three years to renew the leadership of society and also to deal with um, the issues generally affecting uh, the working class and how society interacts with the ANC and the SACP, the Alliance Partners. So um, what happened yesterday was, um, you know, it was expected to be pretty smooth running because, uh, you know, now that NUMSA is no longer here and um, the, the union's the affiliates that were loyal to them, uh, you know, made a big show of things at the Special National Congress in July. So they were expected, you know, to just um, go with the flow here. But that didn't really happen. You had the Food and Allied Workers Union, which is one of the smaller unions mm. uh, here at this Congress. They only have 160 delegates out of 2,500 voting delegates. Um, they, uh, uh, you know, were quite rebellious here, uh, taking on the Kusati leadership on the issue of credentials first and foremost. They were questioning the inclusion of the new Metal Workers Union, Limusa, um, and also the status of Kosati's second deputy president, Zingli Saudi, mm. because they believe she's uh, illegitimate. Uh, so that was the first thing they did. And they held up the Congress for, for most of yesterday. Um, it was quite bizarre that uh, President Zuma came to address this Congress, but he was kept in a holding room downstairs. Uh, and and couldn't uh, couldn't come in uh, for a couple of hours and then left to to, the end, to uh, attend an ANC meeting and then came back last night to address the Congress. So when he returned last night, there was another fight going on, and that um, uh, was about the nomination for the top six positions in Kosati. Mm. So what you had is uh, five of those six positions. Uh, the people were nominated, the same leadership were nominated mm. uncontested. But we've had a vacancy for the uh, the position of General Secretary. Uh, the former Deputy General Secretary, Begin Salin Sali, was um, nominated unopposed. Mm. Uh, but FAU then put up a last-minute stand to say they want to reopen uh, the nominations for all those positions. So that was another fight last night. Wow. Um, but today, uh, things are quite smooth running. Um it's just a presentation of a, of the political report and a debate on that. And you also had an address by the SACP General Secretary Blade in the Monday. Wow, sounds like a rocky day yesterday. Ranjani, I'm curious. I'm, I've been quite confused by what the president was attempting to say in his speech. Could you clarify for us some of the remarks and what sort of the intent behind what he was trying to trying to explain in his speech yesterday? Unfortunately, if, uh, you know, I, if I attempt to do that, I'd need... Uh, uh, some some special skill in in the art of mind reading because he <laughs> uh, he um, he puzzled quite a lot of people with what he was saying. Um, you know, firstly, he, there was an attack on on capitalism, and um, uh, he was saying that the, the capitalist class basically dictates society. Mm. They do things like set 
our bread uh, bread prices and oil prices, which is quite strange because you, know, you have an international organization called OPEC, which does precisely that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's uh, and and also when it comes to things like uh, like bread pricing, there is regulation of that um, through things like the Competition Commission, and and, and government does have jurisdiction over that. So once again, you had President Zuma, you know, acting quite helpless in front of these delegates. Now, you must know that, um, you know, there they, they has been some turmoil in Kosatu about whether they are being adequately, adequately represented politically. Mm-hmm. So it was up to President Zuma to give them some reassurance that the ANC still represents their interests. Mm-hmm. However, the president then, you know, he was saying that um, the ANC has never um, intended to uh, to fight for socialism, which uh, you know, was a strange message to, uh, to to present to an organization that unashamedly um, uh, advocates for, uh, uh, you know, for socialism in their mm-hmm. lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the workers here are also members of the SACP. So I don't know if the president <laughs> was not aware of who he was addressing or came here to make that point. Yeah. I don't know. It was, it was, it was quite strange. Mm. Ranjani, how's the feeling? Obviously, this Congress, Kasatu's come into it with such, uh, it's been fractured, it's split. How is the focus and attention on unity there? I'd imagine it's, it's talked about a lot, uh, but it seems that the sort of fracture that we've seen in the past is now just the, the status quo? Well, yes, uh, unity is a central message, uh, uh, being advocated. It was a central theme of, uh, the President Sumat Lamini's message opening uh, uh, speech here yesterday, as well as President Zuma's message, uh, you know, the strong emphasis on unity. However, the bizarre thing is that as soon as the president stopped speaking um, and, and, and left the podium, the fight, uh, oh, you know, over, over the top six position started once again. So, <laughs> you know, while they, they preach unity, hmm. it's very difficult, in a, you know, people in a group of people like this who have diverse interests, Many of them are unhappy with the state of the alliance, the state of the country, um, the loss of workers in the country. Um, so, uh, you know, although that, that is always a theme of um, FACP, ANC, COSATU uh, Congresses, it, it, it's very difficult to, in reality, achieve a situation where everybody's marching in tune and have the, the same, very much the same perspectives on issues. Now, also, Ranjani, one of the issues, I guess, that we've already mentioned that sort of overshadows the Congress is the expulsion of the, the Metal Workers Union and General Secret- Secretary as well, Nzima Vavi. Are they, have, have they been mentioned? Uh, uh, are people sort of worried about their potential forming of a new federation? Nothing whatsoever. They, uh, uh, you know, uh, many people assume that they would still be looming over this Congress. Mm. They're not really. There's some mention of them, um, and their uh, intentions to form a new federation. There's some mention of that in the organizational report and political report, but it hasn't really come up in uh, in conversation other than just in passing, um, even in the, in the President's Dumadamini speech. I think that era of uh, of Numsa and Bavi are now well and truly behind Kosas, especially now that they announced that they're not going to appeal their, um, their expulsion uh, at this Congress. So, no, it's not it's not really an issue. But obviously, the, the forces that were loyal to them, um, unions such as Sakau, Pau, um, you know, they, they're still quite rebellious here. And, of course, there's a suspicion that the reason for that is that um, 
they they uh, have an agenda that was set by NUMSA, mm. which they are carrying out here. That you know that they want to still continue to split Kosatu, and um, and that that is why Fau and uh, and uh, and Sakau are putting up a fight on almost everything here. But it's difficult to say that because um, you know Fau, for example, has not been attending NUMSA's meetings that, uh, that they have called on mm. things like the United Front on um, on the um, uh, their meetings on on forming a new federation. So it's it's really not clear what exactly is Fau's uh, uh, att- uh, intentions and uh, whether they will in fact at some stage try to leave Kosasu. Hmm. Ranjani, I'm curious about sort of the political um, um, sort of future of how you know the fracturing we're seeing in the tripartite alliance. Um, could play out. Um, do you see this affecting municipal elections next year, or, or and and just wider than that? How, what do you see as the sort of um, ramifications on the country of a of a significantly weakened or continuing to weaken tripartite alliance? Okay, so they're clearly unhappy with the state of the uh, of the alliance, and they feel that the NC doesn't take Kusati and SACP positions seriously. Um, that they don't sit on key committees. Uh, where, they, where the NC makes big decisions, uh, so they, they feel they feel quite neglected. But it's a typical, you know, battered wife syndrome where uh, they can't really do much to ratchet up the pressure on the NC to take them more seriously. They can keep screaming about it here, and in fact, some delegates in the discussion were saying that you know that they need to stop being crybabies and uh, need to find other ways to influence uh, to assert their influence on the alliance. But it's easier said than done because. You know, the ANC has, is so dominant, has, uh, uh, it still enjoys a majority. So although the ANC does need Kosasu and the SACP on the campaign trail, um, you know, they can continue to, to treat them as junior partners in the alliance and mm. get away with it. Um, so I don't know what exactly this Congress can come up with to make sure that the ANC takes them uh, more seriously. Uh, it's uh, you know, other than um, than the militant language and uh, and strong calls on on the ANC um, to 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 listen to them on issues such as the national development plan, where they have serious concerns on issues on the economy and on labour, um, and uh, you know other issues like labour brokers. So, but I, I doubt it. I doubt there's going to be significant changes in government policy. But for their part, Kosasu, from what the language I'm hearing and from what I'm uh, reading in the documents, they still pledge unequivocal support for the ANC in the in next year's local government election. Now, Ranjini, one of the issues leading up to this Congress was the fact that with NUMSA pulling out, it sort of pulled pulled key revenues from Kasatu's budget, and and Kasatu has had two national congresses in quick succession. People were worried about can can they pay for the event, and how does it look there? Are there enough water bottles and banners? Oh yeah, I mean it's you know it's a full congress with the with all the the trimming. But uh, one thing that was quite comical earlier was that uh, after the address by. Uh, the SACP General Secretary Bladen Zimande and a song burst out on, on, on communism and people were marching around singing. But as that was happening, the banners of the sponsors were being flushed on the big screen. <laughs> 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 that was quite funny uh, to watch. But so, yes, you know, there are always those, um, those contradictions at, at events like this. Um, and and the, the Kosatu is admitting that it does have financial problems. Uh, the concerns about um, 
the, the investment arms of various unions about Kopana uh, Kremaitla, the investment arm of Kusatu and how it's managed. And, and there's, there's an intention to close that down. So there are serious financial problems. But apparently the, the sponsors came to the party and that's why they're able to have T-shirts and water bottles and, and so forth. On the issue of, um, of succession, the Kosati leadership is, is being quite careful mm. to say that it's not Kosati's business to pronounce now at this stage who they want as uh, President Jacob Zuma's successor and who they want as the leadership of the ANC mm. um, in, uh, in 2017. However, some unions are trying to defy that line. In the discussion just now, in the political report, uh, the, uh, a delegate from Satu, in fact, sneaked it in, saying that uh, we must be careful to and, and make sure that the, the deputy president of the NC is elected as the, as the mm. NC president in 2017. Wow. And he, there was a loud applause uh, from, from the entire Congress for that. So clearly, Kosati is going to rally behind um, deputy president Cyril Ramaphosa, but they're just careful as to when they do it and that they don't offend the NC in the way they do it. And Jenny, I hope you got some of those T-shirts for the rest of us. Thanks for the roundup. <laughs> uh, you look quite good in red, uh, so I'll, I'll try and do my best to get one piece. Okay, perfect. We'll let you get back to it. Thanks so much. Okay, my pleasure. Okay, favorite. perfect. As mentioned, that's Associate Editor for the Daily Maverick, Ranjani Munusami, who's live at the Kosatu Congress and giving us everything going on from there. We're just going to go into a quick break and then come back and talk all things continental with Simon Allison. Remember, this Daily Maverick show is proudly delivered to you by PostNet Courier. Dora from Delmas sent documents to Dana in Dallas. Tandiwe sent toys from Tabazimbi to Toronto. Both used PostNet Global Express. They chose from eight different box sizes, packed their items in their boxes, and their parcels were delivered directly to their international destinations. PostNet Global Express delivers two-door anywhere worldwide. It's easy, affordable, and convenient. Plus, you can track your parcel online. There are over 300 PostNet stores nationwide. Locate your nearest store at postnet.co.za. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're back with us on The Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Remember, you can join the conversation on at DMShowsAday. We love to hear from you. Solomon, thank you for the tweets. We love engaging with you every week. We're just about to go through to Simon Allison to talk about some of the news from around the continent. Simon, can you hear us? I'm with you, Kingsley. Okay, perfect. Simon, firstly, it's good to have you on. It's been a while. It has been a while. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you in the studio today. Uh, no, I'm sure you're busy elsewhere. Now, next, Simon, I'm curious if you could give us an update on, on what's going on in Mali. We saw the attacks late last week that really that really rocked the continent and shocked us you know, down here. And I'm just curious what's been happening since. Well, look, I, I want to start with a little bit of context on this Mali stuff. I was in Bamako about two months ago. Mm. Um, and what was astonishing to me is how sort of how, how active the conflict is in Mali, but how little we know about it. Mm. And I think a big part of that is the sort of divide between um, the English bits of Africa, the sort of colonial English bits of Africa, mm. and, and the colonial French bits of Africa. Because there was plenty of French media, there's plenty of coverage in, in the big French publications, the, the big French African publications, but there really hasn't been anything in um, the, the Anglophone media. And, and that's why this attack has really caught us so much by surprise, because we kind of thought, yeah, we know Mali had problems, mm. had a bit of a civil war, but they had an election, they sorted it out, it's all fine there now. It's not all fine there now. Um, it really is still an active conflict zone. In the north, 
where, which is where you know, the rebellion started in, I think it was, it was what, 2012, 2013. Um, in the north, it, it really is still an area that the government has almost no control over, certainly that the UN peacekeeping force has no control over, which means it is a place where various political groups, some of them Islamists, some of them nationalists, some of them separatists, um, they can use that area to, to really, you know, um, have their base, to mm. regroup, to prepare. Um, and one of these groups, um, uh, the group called themselves the Maribitun, um, they have now claimed credit for this attack on Bamako. And it really is no surprise because it, it's the government in Bamako, it's the UN force that is headquartered in Bamako that they are fighting against. Now, Simon, was this was this an attempt? Do you think to derail the peace process that's underway within Mali? You know, we talk a lot about peace processes in this line of work. Um, you know, South Sudan signed a historic peace conference, peace process, what two or three months ago, mm. and look where they are. They're, they're already fighting again. So yes, there was a peace agreement signed between most of the rebel groups um, in, I think it was June or July. But that agreement was always very um, tenuous, and it, it wasn't signed by all of the fighting parties. Um, so I, I think that, you know, when we were talking, you know, people talking about peace in Mali are really missing the point, because peace doesn't come from an agreement. Um, it really is only going to come when some of the structural issues that, that really drive this conflict are sorted out. One of the major ones, of course, is um, you know, economic inequality between the North and the South, Another is historic marginalization, which is harder to address. And then the third one is that Mali cannot be looked at in isolation. Mali can only be seen as one part of mm. the puzzle, with Algeria being another part, Libya being another part, Niger being another part. You know, the, the, the whole Sahel region um, is trying to deal with a um, threat from various rebel groups, um, many of whom have, have taken up the, the sort of Islamist flag. And I think that we have to deal with it as a regional problem rather than a country-specific problem. And we have seen signs that this is happening. The French um, have launched an operation. It's called Operation Barkana, I think. And that um, is headquartered in, I want to say, Niger. And it, um, it sort of looks at five different countries um, to, to get that regional perspective and recognize it, you know, because you can, you can bomb someone in, in Mali, for example, but all they have to do is hop across the border um, into, into Algeria, and then they're safe all of a sudden. And, and that really is what needs to happen if we're going to stop these groups once and for all. Mm. So I mean, that seems to be one of the key things, that this hotel um, was, I, th- I think it's sort of a, a lot of foreigners staying there, and the French have been sort of leading this regional fight against um, against these groups through Operation Bakane. Was it, is this sort of a, a fight back to, the, to that French um, force? That, that sort of tries to strike them back at their hearts while, while they've been sort of pushing all, all of these militants out? Look, I think if, you are an, if you're a militant group looking for a target mm. in a city like Bamako, and Bamako is like many other African cities where it doesn't have a huge amount of, of infrastructure that caters to the rich and to the elite. Um, you know, it doesn't have that many fancy restaurants or five-star hotels. So... Where do you want, the, as, a, as, a, as a militant, where do you want to cause the, the damage? You know, do you want to bomb the market, which is, um, you know, poor people, people that, that aren't making decisions, or do you want to bomb 
high-value targets. Mm. Now, the answer is not always the same. I mean, Boko Haram, for example, are, are renowned for bombing marketplaces, for bombing bus stops, for bombing ordinary people. Um, but um, certainly in Mali, we haven't seen too much of that. We tend to see groups go for, you know, they really are targeting what they perceive as their enemies. And a, and a hotel like the Radisson Blue brings together a number of those enemies. It brings together the French. It brings together UN peacekeepers who are sipping coffee there on their duty breaks. It brings together all the government officials who go there and they spend their, you know, their per day and what they earned in some conference. They, they, they spend that um, in, in the hotel restaurant. So it, it really, you know, it, 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 the Radisson Blue and hotels of that ilk sort of um, bring all those high-value targets together into one place. And, and it just is a very sensible place for a militant group to attack. So it's a bit too early to say that this is directed just against the French, um, although that, that certainly would have played a role. But, but I think rather it's better to look at it as, as sort of, it's a one, 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 you know, the Radisson Blue is a one-stop shop mm. where um, the militants can go for all their enemies at once. I hear you, Simon. That's something we'll continue to watch. Just quickly to change topics, could you tell us a bit about the child marriages? That's something that the continent is focusing on this week. This is, is not really something that we see in the headlines too much. Could you just give us some it's, context? Uh, you know, we do not see this in the headlines at all. And hmm. I've been talking to people about this, South Africans, um, saying, oh, you know, I went to Mozambique and um, we, we met some child brides and, and the AU is having a big thing on child marriage and everybody being like, what? Is there, you know, do we have child marriages in Southern Africa? Mm. You know, everyone said, I thought they, that was like Afghanistan or Yemen or something. Um, surely it's not in Mozambique, which is right next door. Mm. The truth is quite shocking, actually. So I, I went to Mozambique to uh, a province a little bit north of Maputo, in Yambane, and Mozambique has one of the highest rates of child marriage in the world. So almost one out of every two... Um, Women in Mozambique was married before the age of 18, um, which is really a, a shocking statistic. If, uh, you know, if I think about how completely uh, immature I am in my own life and unable to make serious decisions, and I'm 29, um, to think of having to make these kinds of life-changing decisions at 13, 14, 15 years old, and of course, often these girls have no choice in the matter. So what, what is happening is in Lusaka, um, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the African Union is meeting um, for the first ever um, summit to end child marriage mm. in Africa. And it's really a big deal because, you know, this clearly is an issue. I mean, Africa accounts for 13% of all the child marriage in the world. So it, it's, a, it's a big issue on the continent. It's something we need to tackle. But there hasn't really been a political spotlight on it before. And so the AU is hoping to put that political spotlight on. And, and then what it needs to do is kind of twofold. Number one, it needs to um, make sure that there are legal restrictions against child marriage. At the moment, in many countries, there are legal loopholes that say, well, you know, if there's consent of the parents, often mm. not consent of the child. With consent of the parents, um, the, the child can get married, um, or, or sometimes it's not criminalized at all. So the first push will just be make sure that all countries' laws um, criminalize child marriage. The second push, and this is so much harder, is to start changing cultural perception um, about what child marriage is. So one social worker in Mozambique, mm. um, she said to me, look, we have this legal definition of what a child is, age 18, and then the person is no longer a child. 
But if you are in a village where age is not a very important thing, how do you define what's a child and what's not? And often the definition is physical. So once a girl grows breast um, and has her, her period, then she is considered to be an adult. Um, and, and it's changing this idea to be like, no, you know, because actually, even though she shows signs of being a woman, outward signs, mm. um, she really isn't ready to bear children yet, especially, and, and make kind of big life decisions. So that's really what has to change. Simon, this is a bit of a dumb question, but on this issue, can you just take us back in terms of the key neg- negative effects of child marriage? I'd imagine that it reduces, it, it takes some girls out of school, it, it sort of forces them into a life situation that they're not ready to make that decision for, it perhaps makes them more prone to, um, I guess, getting pregnant and then even even HIV AIDS or something like that mm-hmm. at, a, at a very young age. But when when we talk about these issues, what a sort of what impact does it have on these young girls' lives? Absolutely, it's, it's a really good question, and you did raise some of the of the main effects there. The big one is education. Um, almost none of these girls who get married early continue with their education. Um, a second one is it has kind of pretty severe health problems, um, you know, especially w- w- with women who aren't ready to engage in any kind of sexual relation, mm. um, are sort of forced to have it at, at a young age before they're ready, and this can cause very, very serious complications for the body. Um, it, it can really, um, you know, create hardships for life. Um, it, it also, you know, more generally has... A, a very important effect on gender relations. So what happens almost always is, is now you get these young, uneducated girls um, who have to stay at home and look after kids at a young age. Mm. Um, and then it's men who continue with education and it's men who go out and get jobs. Um, so what that means is, is you are sort of reinforcing the dynamic in society of, of men being educated breadwinners and women being uneducated stay-at-home parents. Um, and, and it really makes it very difficult to address gender inequality in that context. I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the gender inequality. Um, I think the last time you were on the show, we talked about the AU's at least verbal commitment to this issue of gender inequality, and and you know, and how that has been sometimes lacking. Do you think this and the, and that just the fact that this summit exists is a is a big win or a clear sh- sign that the AU is actually serious about this issue? It, it is a big sign. I, I think it's a big step. Um, and I think uh, our very own in Kosozana at Lamini Zuma mm. deserves quite a lot of credit for pushing this through because I, I, I really don't think that this would have happened, well, indeed it didn't happen, um, under any of her predecessors' camp- uh, tenures as AU chair. And, of course, she is the first female AU chair we've had. Um, and it's an example of the kind of small, incremental stuff that the AU does well. Sure, mm. they can't solve South Sudan, um, or Somalia, but these are these are huge issues that mm. you know, frankly, no one can solve. Um, but the AU does a really good job at at, at these little issues. So you know, and it's a slow process. But calling this meeting, getting all the all the relevant ministers as well as many first ladies, um, and of course, in, in many countries um, where democracy doesn't happen so much, the first lady can be more influential than any government official. So it's important to get the first ladies involved too. So it's all these influential people talking to them about child marriages, explaining why it's bad, explaining what needs to change and what can be done, um, and then them hopefully going home, changing their own legislation, um, and starting to change some of the norms 
And this is how change happens. It happens gradually, it happens slowly, but you've got to start somewhere, and the AU is making that start. And I think it deserves a lot of credit for that. And I hear you here, we are talking about it right now, right? So, you know, clearly it's, it's done something. Simon, I'd like to change topics quickly and ask about the resurgence of Ebola in Liberia. I mean, that's something that really, really surprised me. And I just wanted to get your opinion on that. Is this, you know, how did this happen? It's, look, it's complicated. Um, I know quite a few people who work with Doctors Without Borders, um, either in, in Liberia now or who have come back, and, mm. and they're all devastated because, you know, they, they all thought that this disease um, had been eliminated. And, of course, that was what was announced a few months ago. But, of course, that area, you know, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia, the borders are very poor. Um, it, it's easy for people to come and go across those borders. So, you know, as long as one of those countries remains infected, and at the moment Guinea is infected, mm. um, there's always a risk that the disease can jump back across the border with somebody. Um, however, what's interesting about this Liberia case and what is really, really worrying the medical authorities who are examining it is they can't find an obvious link. Mm. So, you know, the, 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 the first victim they picked up, they found him in Monrovia, the capital city, mm. um, him or her, I'm, I'm not sure who it was, but, but they found a person in, in the capital. Um, they've, managed, they've also found three or four people that are also infected, but they cannot trace the link from those people to existing infections in Guinea. That's so crazy. they don't really know how it got across the border. Um, you know, and what they're asking themselves now is, is there, uh, or uh, are there cases of Ebola that we have missed um, and we haven't actually got rid of the disease in the first place at all? So that's a really big worry at the moment. But having said that, um, the, the procedures now are so well established. Everyone knows what they're doing. They know how to react to these Ebola cases. They know how to trace the contact, and they've started doing that. Um, it, it is highly, highly unlikely that we'll see any outbreak, um, any small outbreak, develop into a massive outbreak um, of the kind of stuff we were seeing last year. I mean, yeah, that was my worry. I mean, you mentioned the porous borders, and I'm thinking the second, if we have a resurgence in one country, does it create, you know, a massive scare? But it sounds like that, that given the levels of containment, that that's unlikely, right? Absolutely. I, I think that you know, we will continue seeing cases of Ebola here and there, mm. you know, two or three there, three or four there. But ultimately, um, we're not going to see hundreds and hundreds of cases at the same time unless um, it starts, uh, the virus starts mutating and, and changing the way that it um, infects people. Um, and, and that's the big worry, is that if it, you know, becomes airborne mm. rather than only um, passed on by bodily fluids, then we could be in serious trouble. But there's no sign of that happening now, so um, we probably shouldn't worry about it too much. Okay. So um, it's quite interesting now that, so as this crisis, the crisis phase of Ebola, I guess, is sort of wrapping up and we've had an opportunity to reflect on the response to it. Mm. Um, we've seen in the last couple of days the World Health Organization take some pretty harsh criticism over their response or their lack or late response. It's not new, but it, you know, there is this one new report that has laid into the World Health Organization, but it is the latest of several reports that have done the same. Um, Doctors Without Borders, uh, you know, in the initial stages of the outbreak, was scathing in its criticism of the WHO's slow response. Um, so yes, the WHO messed up badly on Ebola. It missed the warning signals. It missed the chance to nip 
the epidemic in the flood, mm. it, it didn't raise the alarm, which is really what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to see these things before anyone else, and it's supposed to find a way to fix it. Um, and it failed. But it has also admitted that it failed. You know, it, it has um, said, look, we did some things wrong. We did lots mm. of things wrong mm. when it comes to Ebola. And hopefully they have learned those lessons. They say they've learned those lessons. But we're only going to know until we see a, 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 you know, another epidemic come up. I hear you, Simon. Um, I think we were ready to bash the WHO a bit, but it sounds like you're painting them as being reflective and honest about what happened and how to you know, do better next time. So it's really hard to fault that. I'd like to believe that of everyone, Kingsley. I'm just, uh, I'm just an optimistic guy. <laughs> Very sweet of you. Simon, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you for coming. I hope you're in studio next time. Always a pleasure. Okay, Thanks, perfect. Guys. Thanks. That's Senior Africa Correspondent of the Daily Maverick, Simon Allison. Greg, we've just got a few minutes left. I've been dying to just say this on air, man. South Gosh, African what, movie. What is this? South African movie won an Emmy this morning. I'm just so excited. Minor shot down. Yeah. Of course, yeah. No, this has been a big year for South African movies and minor shot down, I guess. I saw, I saw the announcement that it's won an Emmy and I'm going to look into it a little bit later on this afternoon. Uh, but I think it's fantastic. It was, uh, people have their different opinions on, on the documentary. It's, mm. uh, a documentary by, I think, director Rehad Desai, mm. who's, who's very active in the Marikana support campaign. I think this, this movie came out about a year, I think, after the, after the massacre in 2012, August 2012. And, it's a very, it's hard, hard to even describe, very emotional portrayal of those Absolutely. events in the week, I think, um, leading, leading up to the, those, those killings in Marikana. And so it's, it's fantastic that it's finally been recognized. I'm not sure of the process why it took so long to mm. be recognized to win an Emmy. But one of the key things that, that will define the South Africa's response to it is the access people have to it. We have a South African Emmy award winning documentary. That hasn't, and it doesn't look like it's, there are any plans to air it on free-to-air television, which, of course, is how most people in the country watch TV. I mean, that was actually my second thought. First was, you know, giant excitement. The second was, I wonder what this does to its chances of being seen by majority of the country. I mean, is it, is it even realistic to expect that this will ever be on television? It's hard to, hard to know. We don't know what's in the minds of the executives at uh, E and, and the SABC, um, content procurement sort of guys. But I know there was talk. We could assume there's not much going on at SABC well, right now. They're just trying well, to keep their job. Well, interestingly, there was. I remember, so I did a story on this a year or so ago yeah. about, because Rihad, Rihad Desai um, was pushing for it to be on these, on these stations. Yeah. And um, I can't remember which station it was, but there, there was talk about... Excuse me. There was talk about at least either E or one of the SABC TV stations about sort of having the go ahead for it, but then it didn't seem to, it didn't seem to materialize. So I think it, it, it certainly adds a lot of weight to, to the calls to have it aired on free to air TV. That's for sure. I mean, it's, the thing is, and then part of my excitement, I suppose you're, you know, pushing for this movie to be seen. It's, I mean, it's less really, and the movie ultimately is just a vehicle to, to honor and to talk about, you know, the lives that were lost at Marikana and that continued sort of pursuit for justice. I mean, there's been some conversations about the compensation. Mm. I think that only happened about, you know, two hours ago and the whole, I think the DA and Musi Maimani are launching some kind of, you know, compensation plan. Is that something you've had a chance to look at? No, not yet. I haven't had a chance to look at that, but uh, I think it happened 
later on this morning, and it's probably a follow-up of the Democratic Alliance's proposals to introduce a bill to compensate the victims and the, and the relatives of the victims from Marikana. But on the airing of Miners Shot Down, I think, well, like I'm not sure if honouring the, the those who were killed and those involved um, is a great motivation. Of course, it's important to do that. But the problem is this, the Marikana massacre is so political. And and the thing is that I think my key, I'd say, argument, I think the key argument that everyone should be able to appreciate in terms of having miners shot down on public, uh, public air te- free television is information. So we need different stories and different opinions on, on this issue. And we, it's, it's, it's crucial, this event for South Africa's, um, post apartheid democracy and, and history and politics. And we need all the information out there as possible. And if we have a documentary that is very well done, it's received a lot of awards and it can really help inform the, inform the public. And, and add to the, all the other information that we also know and, and, and can discuss about Marikana, then I think that's just, that's just going to help us deal with this post-apartheid, this really crucial post-apartheid event, event. And I think the country needs to deal with it and we need all the information possible to deal with it. Absolutely. There you heard it. For anyone listening, please, please, you can go on YouTube, just search Minor Shutdown. It's been made available to watch for free. I'm um, just, I suppose, in celebration of this moment and its success. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. The Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Remember, you can download and share the podcast from cliffcentral.com. We'll see you next week, same time, 1 to 2 p.m. See you then. Dora from Delmas sent documents to Dana in Dallas. Tandiwe sent toys from Tabazimbi to Toronto. Both used PostNet Global Express. They chose from eight different box sizes, packed their items in their boxes, and their parcels were delivered directly to their international destinations. PostNet Global Express delivers two-door anywhere worldwide. It's easy, affordable, and convenient. Plus, you can track your parcel online. There are over 300 PostNet stores nationwide. Locate your nearest store at postnet.co.za. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, this Daily Maverick show is proudly delivered to you by PostNet Courier. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.